Hello and welcome to History Respond. This is John Harney and I'm joined today by Bob. Hey, Bob. Hey, John. How are you? I am good, thanks. Bob, as you know, um, the agenda today is driven primarily by my need, my desire, my um, irrefutable desire to discuss Crusader Kings 3, the sequel to my favorite game of all time, which was Crusader Kings 2. <laughs> good. Let's that's, let's hear about that's it. That's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about Crusader Kings 3. I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, uh, we'll, we'll Later on, we'll get into what's coming up on the History Respond website and um, uh, channel and stuff later. So Crusader Kings 3 came out. Uh, it came out uh, this past Tuesday evening in Europe, um, lunchtime in the US. And um, um, I don't know what to tell. Crusader Kings 3 is really good. Um, so it's this very strange game in the sense that it's um, it's kind of just Crusader Kings 2, except it's very pretty. And it's so much more welcoming. Mm. And it's just so much more um, inviting. So it's still a weird, grognardy, complicated game. But whereas I got into Crusader Kings 2 by finding a seven-page forum post about a guy who managed to turn a family from the city of Limerick, which is where I'm from, into um, a massive empire controlling North Africa. And that's how I learned to play Crusader Kings 2. The game now does that in a tutorial, which I'm guessing if you'd never played a Paradox game would take about 20 minutes. Mm. Um, and there's definitely moments where you're like, wait, what? If you've never played a Paradox game. But it, it shows you, hey, this is who you are. This is how traits work. Um, this is what you should do. Here's how to find someone to marry your offspring to. Here's how to wage a war. Um, have fun. And like, there's there's more to the game, but it talks you through the basic stuff. The UI is vastly superior to what it used to be. And they've added, um, this was kind of there in Crusader Kings 2 DLC, but they've added this kind of leveling up process kind of borrowed from other Paradox games like Hearts of Iron. And so um, it just, this is as smooth... If anybody was interested in getting into one of these big, big strategy games, CK3 is is your best chance yet. And I haven't um, I haven't played enough of it yet to really get into this, but I'm pretty sure that before too long, I'll discover my this is CK2, but prettier and easier is is unfair. I think there's definitely more to it. I haven't really got there yet, um, but they've definitely kept the same odd, dark sense of humor. So as I tweeted the other day, I ended up in a situation where far and away the most sensible thing for me to do to, to proceed well in the game was to marry my granddaughter to her uncle, my <laughs> nephew. And I just, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, and so that's kind of an early taste of, you know, and people are having affairs and bishops are, bishops are getting diseases they shouldn't technically be able to get. So all, all the good things are, are happening. There it is. John Harney's Crusader Kings 3 review. All right. People well, buy- thanks for joining us on this episode of History Respond. Uh, <laughs> now, that all sounds really promising. You know, uh, Crusader Kings 2 is a game that I played for, I would I would guess, about five to six hours. It wasn't really my jam. I was much more interested in uh, Europa Universalis and, and Hearts of Iron. Um, but Crusader Kings is just not not really my thing. But I am interested in this game primarily because of what you mentioned, this kind of uh, smoothed out, what you might call onboarding process for mm-hmm. getting players up to speed about what to expect, what kinds of shenanigans you can get up to. And, uh, you know, it sounds like, you know, from listening to you and from, uh, you know, reading reviews, early reviews of the game, that uh, this is a type of game that you can kind of make it what you want it to be. Uh, you know, if you want it to be kind of a military style strategy game, you can do that. If you want it to be about these kind of uh, 
court really relationships and uh, you know kind of backstabbing and whatnot, and you could do that as well. And so I think that's the most exciting part of it because when you think about historical strategy games in you know kind of the the vein of civilization or even total war, they're kind of uh, really funneling you down certain styles of play. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the greatness of these paradox games is about the sandboxy nature of these titles. Yeah, and you're hugely reliant on um, stuff that's hard to change quickly. So, I mean, it's almost like a bit of a nod to the community that the tutorial is in Ireland. You start off in Munster, which is where I'm from, because in the previous game, the community had dubbed Ireland Tutorial Island because it's just such a good place to start to play the game because you're kind of you're more or less being left alone and you've got a bit of time to build up at the same time. Although you can become very powerful, it's, it's just kind of hard to do. So for example, if you want to build, you know, a stable or, or, or if you want to build a building in your, um, in one of your counties that will give you more archers, which is another actually part of CK three, which has become much more transparent as how armies work and things like that. Um, that takes about three years in game mm. to build that. And it costs about 200 gold. And especially early in the game, 200 gold is a lot of gold. Um, you know, like I'm making about um, eight gold a month, which is a good income, um, which is pretty healthy. So you, can, you, you can't just, um, you know, I have no quick way to ramp up Ireland's military capacity. Um, but I could get there. Now, the other side of it is I've just united the island of Ireland and I'm hoping to just kind of chill. Um, and if I want to, I could do that. Um, and I know it doesn't sound terribly exciting maybe to listeners who've never played a Paradox game, but I could, you know, I could really work on Ireland's infrastructure over the next century. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, my long-term goal is to create a Celtic alliance to eradicate the English. I mean, obviously, what mm-hmm. else would I do? But um, but you're right, you can just kind of hang out. And the one thing about Crusader Kings 3, I'm assuming, because Crusader Kings 2 was like this, it will kind of push the personal stuff on you. It kind of really wants you to at least be aware of it and you know factions and stuff. But you don't have to dive fully into it. And what's interested me is the systems are are are, are pretty similar. And it's kind of amazing as someone who isn't a game designer to note how a cha- how a UI change that theoretically is just a surface level change really impacts how the player interacts with this kind of stuff. So when you declare war in the last game you had to go into, you had to click two or three times to get into your military screen and raise different kinds of levies. And it was good because it gave you a choice. I could raise these levies, but not those, yada, yada, yada. That guy's still upset with me. If I if I raise his army, he might he might rebel on me in the middle of the war, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. And in Crusader Kings 3, there's a raise all armies button. And it's silly because it saves you like maybe three seconds of your life. But the change in how you approach the game is just huge mm-hmm. you know like it's just it's it's actually kind of hard it's kind of hard to explain and they, they've done a little uh, a couple of tweaks on how war actually works to make it a bit simpler which i actually also think makes sense um they actually tell you why when you siege a territory it becomes crossed with these different kinds of lines different colored lines which they never explained at the previous game just to figure <laughs> out um so that's been really interesting because the same is true for the intrigue and stuff like starting a scheme is is pretty easy and now they have this lovely mechanic called hooks which feels kind of very video gamey but works beautifully so for example i won a war early in my game and i imprisoned the guy's wife and son because apparently that's what you do and i decided i didn't want to have an eight-year-old in prison so i decided i'd release him and the game is like well if you want you can have a hook on him 
like, oh, and a hook is something that you can use negotiating with that character. So to get higher taxes out of him or to get him to come and help you in a war. Or what, it depends on there's different strengths of hooks and everything. Mm. And I like it because it gives you something that makes sense to you in your head later if you want to do a video game thing with this character later. But it also makes sense narratively because if you were in my prison and I let you go and I didn't have to, it would make sense I would have, quote, a hook over you. Mm. Um, and also, you know, it, my spy master discovered that um, one of my vassals who doesn't like me is having an affair with the crazy atheist lunatic who hangs out in our court for some reason. And if I want to, I can expose him um, to get him in trouble or I can I can reach out to him privately and say, wouldn't it be terrible if I told your wife and all the other vassals that you're that you're having an affair with an atheist? Um, and so it actually it's such a clever little thing, this hook. And, 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 and that's kind of the most in your face example of how they've kind of evolved some of those things. But I think that idea, I think they just went into the game to say, how can we make this less opaque to people? Mm -hmm. And that seems to have spawned lots of cool ideas on its own. Yeah. And I think that that is a worthwhile endeavor. I mean, I would assume that there are probably many players, uh, you know, hardcore paradox fans who are like, Ah, uh, they didn't change the game enough, you know, and uh, this right, is just kind of right. more CK. But at the same time, you know, those kinds of UI issues, those kinds of uh, issues with opaqueness, were what turned me off of CK two. And so I would say that iterating on those and improving those, that's a worthwhile endeavor because you're going to get players who come in and look at the game game completely differently from mm -hmm. the Ragnarks and maybe enliven the kind of community around the game. Yeah. And, you know, you compare this to new iterations of other strategy games, you know, kind of the most famous one is Civilization, but Total War is kind of like this as well. You know, how much are they really changing the game, you know, with each iteration? That's not that right. much, right? It's just kind of fresh coat of paint improvements on UI. And so I would say that, you know, if there were people out there who were complaining about this just being more CK, Mm -hmm. You know, it's it kind of fits in part and parcel with the rest of, you know, new strategy games. It's, it's not that much different. And at least for me, it sounds really exciting because of those small improvements. And and, and some of them are, are so subtle. I'm just thinking now as we're talking, you know, this is a classic Paradox game thing where you can change the speed at which time is passing. And even the little kind of graphic, you know, flair they put on that little thing. It's just it's just a more welcoming game in that sense, and <clears throat> it unleashes in many ways the strengths of Creative Kings two or Creative Kings two and three, because a lot of people will talk to you, and I've certainly talked in this podcast before about it's such an interesting kind of narrative kind of game, but really bringing home to me this past week of, you know, so for those who've never played one of these games, um, you're you're going through. Um, obviously not real time, but you know you'll go through day by day. There's a calendar. There's a moving calendar in the bottom of your screen. And at the slowest setting, it takes a few seconds for a day to pass. Mm -hmm. So it takes it really takes quite a while. And it takes your army X amount of days to get from one place to the other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but because you're focused on your character and then his or her offspring and everything else. So my character, everything kind of got settled. People were respecting him. So he went to Rome on a pilgrimage to just get some piety, a very video gamey thing. Piety is a currency in the game. But that's how life works. You know, if someone's alive for 50 years... They're not full-on lunatics the entire 50 years most of the time. I mean, some of them are. Like, they're doing different kinds of things. There's so different things have happened in the kingdom. And this is the huge strength of the Crusader Kings games is the sense of, obviously, these are made-up characters, and sometimes they do rather kind of crazy things. Um, 
but that human beings are complex and deeply arbitrary. And whether we like it or not, you know, the medieval period can become perhaps a cliched shorthand for this. But whether we like it or not, human individual decisions just have these massive, massive impacts yeah. um, on what happens. Yeah. And and that that's the case in, in CK3. And it, it comes to the fore very clearly. And, and it's a lot of fun to play with. Yeah. And I think it's useful for, you know, representing a, a version of the past and I also think in terms of just game mechanics, you know, you think about how compelling uh, role-playing games have been since mm -hmm. you know, forever in gaming, analog gaming, digital gaming. And this really brings in that kind of aspect as, you know, taking on a role, taking on a different persona. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's just a huge breath of fresh air uh, for strategy games because it's kind of one of those ideas that was always kind of latent in strategy mm -hmm. games you know when you think about playing a game of civilization you know you could oh i'm i'm pretending to be queen elizabeth or uh shaka zulu or something like that but you know your character never really had any personality or intrigue along with right it, unless it existed in your mind and i do know people who used to play civilization uh, while holding on to a replica sword, you know, like really getting into <laughs> the idea of being a world leader. Um, but here with the Paradox games uh, in CK in particular, uh, they've really leaned into that. And I think you're going to see that popping up more and more often. You know, we already talked recently about Old World and how that game has a little bit of this uh, kind of extra RPG, extra uh, mm -hmm. narrative elements added in to the leader of your civilization or your uh, country, what have you. And I would not be surprised at all if Firaxis in their next iteration of civilization kind of lean into the idea of uh, expanding the role of leaders inspired partly by paradox. So I, I think it's a it's a great development in terms of, you know, what we talk about, you know, historical mm -hmm. representation in games, but it's also a great development just for playing games, just in terms of game mechanics. Yeah, the, you know, Old World, Humankind is coming out, which yes. I said a little bit beta stuff. Um, and of course, the most recent Total War games, they're all kind of leaning into these character ideas. I mean, before we leave CK3 as well, I'll say it's, 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 speaking of representation, it's just so interesting. CK3 is a particular type of a game that Civ couldn't really emulate all the way because it's just, we're going to build these super complex systems and let you do what you're going to do. At the moment in my game, the first game I played with CK3, my granddaughter is the heir to the kingdom. I've united Ireland, and so she is going to, and it, it's done through Tanistry, so it's basically, you know, we're all voting. Um, and she is she's the leader in the votes, although it's it's kind of fluctuated basically because everyone everyone thinks that my character is awesome because he's 55 and he united Ireland. So like he's just, you know, 55 in the year 1050. He's been around forever as far as they're concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and so through my character's sheer authority and she's only just turned 18, she's going to be the next she's going to be Queen of Ireland, mm -hmm. um, hopefully, because I don't want the other guy to be to take over. She's not going to get any of my other titles in part because she's a woman and I can go in and I can change. Um, I can, I have enough prestige, just another currency. I could change rules to make sure that women aren't eligible for the kingdom of Ireland. I could do that now. And, there, and, and cause I know that when she becomes queen, there'll be these penalties against her. She's too young. She's only been the ruler for a few months, et cetera, et cetera. But there will be, I'm assuming cause CK2 had this, a penalty from all the men, all the vassals that she's a woman. And, and some of them at least will have that penalty. And, I mean, that sucks, but that's also pretty accurate to what, you know, like medieval rulers, yeah. certainly in Western Europe, were like. Yeah. But because it's just so grounded in, especially the further you get under the hood, what's well, a very complex model, 
it makes sense, I think. And so you're getting away. So, for example, in a Call of Duty game where someone's like, oh, you know, this is nonsense. There weren't women or whatever. But you don't mind the guy with the minigun on the back of a camel running around the desert, you know. But suddenly, suddenly you care about verisimilitude when it comes to the gender of the competence and stuff. CK, the Crusader Kings games, I think, are different because the system is there. And at least so far, you know, my granddaughter is going to be the queen. And so the game is giving me ways that, yeah, you can get around it. Mm-hmm. In the way that you can get on lots of things mm-hmm. in, in the game, so I, I, I think I, I like that because they're not. There's no. How do I put it? All they're really doing is trying to be true to the sense of creating an open narrative sandbox to kind of recreate historical scenarios, but in so doing, I think they are doing representation a solid. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're 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 leaving that door open, which I think is which is great. Yeah. So we are planning on doing a live stream of this game at some point um yeah yeah we hopefully lots of fun things will happen diseases and trips to rome we'll figure it out we'll uh, we'll do it but i think maybe um uh we have a video coming out this week on the channel so maybe we'll do the stream perhaps next week for people who are interested yeah um yeah and yeah definitely definitely worth a look well, it's not, um, although it's the only history video game news that mattered this week, from my perspective. It's not the only. <laughs> uh, there's a few There's a few historical tales, uh, uh, historical settings moving around. Let's jump forward a little bit chrono- chronologically to World War II, and then after that, the Cold War. Um, Bob, you've been keeping a bit better track of this stuff than I have. Well, let's talk about this new Medal of Honor game first can you talk a little bit about about that yeah so uh world war ii has been on my mind quite a bit we're in the midst of remembering the 75th anniversary of the end of the war um this week uh and so there is a new world war ii video game coming out uh unsurprisingly a first person shooter uh, and it is being made by respawn uh, and these are the makers of the titanfall series uh, and then also, I think uh, Apex, right? Am I right in thinking Apex? Is yes, respawn yes, as well. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they've got a team uh, that have been working in the last few years on a VR uh, first-person uh, World War II game, uh, and it is part of the Medal of Honor series. Uh, now, for those listeners who don't remember, uh, the Medal of Honor series is one that debuted way back, I think, in 1999 or 2000 on uh, the PlayStation, uh, and it is a series that uh, was mostly inspired by kind of the World War II movies, documentaries that were coming out in the late 90s. I want to say, too, that the Medal of Honor series had some early production advice from Steven Spielberg and his production company. And so this is a game that was initially designed partly to, you know, sell copies, obviously, uh, but then also to uh, kind of work on this idea of remembering the war and popularizing the memory of the war for video game players. So Spielberg, as many of you know, uh, was really big into uh, this kind of movement with Tom Hanks uh, through Saving Private Ryan. Uh, but then also the TV miniseries uh, Band of Brothers. And so uh, Medal of Honor was kind of a, a multimedia uh, part of that kind of project. And so the early titles uh, really kind of uh, what you would expect from a first-person World War II game, bombastic, uh, cinematic, uh, you know, focus on the American experience in the war. And this new VR title from Respawn called uh, Medal of Honor Above and Beyond 
fits into that mold like a glove. I mean, it was <laughs> watching the trailer, uh, which you can find online. Um, it, it was really like stepping back, uh, back in time to uh, the early 2000s, to my late teenage years, uh, and the kind of games and the kind of narratives uh, that I experienced there. You've got um, your soldier who's uh, dealing with um, the OSS, it looks like, you know, so the Office of Strategic Services. You're an agent uh, and you're working uh, with, uh, you know, everyday soldiers, but then you're also working uh, with members of the French Resistance and members of British intelligence. And it is really a lot like the first couple of Medal of Honor games, which fit that mold to a T. And mm -hmm. I'm really fascinated to see how this game is received, you know, 20 years after the first Medal of Honor game came out. Because, you know, I think that that kind of bombastic, gung-ho view of World War II very much fit the mood of the late 1990s, early 2000s. But I wonder now in the 2020s, if that same sort of perspective is going to be as eagerly gobbled up by players as it was back back then. Yeah, I that's a great question. You're making me feel old now, Bob. But <laughs> I just I got bad news know, for you, John. <laughs> I know, I know. And with COVID and everything, it's just interesting because it just feels like such a weird low profile anniversary of the of the great of, of the larger scale conflict in human history or certainly in recent human history. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's theoretically video games can fill the void. I never know. I also don't know, like the VR space makes it interesting too, because it automatically limits the audience. Um, and we'll know more when it comes out. But I was, when you mentioned the OSS, I was thinking, well, there's, you know, there's the deer team. There's the OSS team that went into Vietnam and worked with Ho Chi Minh against the Japanese. Like there is, if they wanted to for a sequel, there's places they could go. But yeah, I, I'd also be kind of curious. Also, Medal of Honor was a shooter when kind of all you had to do to be a shooter was, or the expectations were different, I guess, yes. to put it that way. Yeah. You know, and these, it, pre, it was pre-Halo, wasn't oh, it? Oh, it was pre-Halo. Um, you yeah. know, I think some of the uh, later titles came out uh, contemporaneously with Halo. But, you know, Halo fundamentally changed the yeah. way that shooters were developed for uh, consoles and Medal of Honor was very much an old style console first person shooter and severely limited in terms of visuals, severely limited in terms of level design uh, and level space. But I mean, I would say, you know, uh, 15, 16 year old Bob had a really great time <laughs> with these games. And I was very much one who was inspired by the greatest generation, inspired by uh, these right. tales of um individual daring uh collective daring during the second world war and it, you know it's it's just fascinating to me now having gone through uh so many years of studying history studying the second world war in particular getting a phd in history now looking back on that period in those games and seeing the ways that it was attempting to you know build a memory for the war among my generation and now I look at it with a much more critical eye and I'm wondering, you know, is this same sort of shtick going to work in the 2020s? Mm -hmm. I mean, it certainly won't have much of an impact on me, but <laughs> for younger players uh, and, you know, again, the audience is a little bit limited because of it being on VR. I don't know how many headsets are really out there and it's debuting first on the Oculus store. Uh, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it is it is interesting to me to to think about 
you know, how the memory of the war is going to continue, how games in the future are going to continue to add to that memory. And mm-hmm. it just seems odd that this game made by a really good developer. I love respawn, but this game that uh, is a new game uh, is still, it feels so old in a sense, even though it's on VR even though it's made with modern technology, the kind of direction and the feel of the trailer on the narrative makes it just feel like a, a throwback uh, to the late yeah. 90s, early 2000s. And I, wor- I wonder as well, like, would the VR audience be older and a bit better off or something? Because I'm just thinking of, um, uh, you know, the, the people that we teach, or at least the quote-unquote traditional college age, right? It's like, obviously, lots of different people go to college, but like you take, let's just say, taking 20-year-olds, like you say, Bob, they haven't grown up with the greatest generation kind of mythos in the mm-hmm. way that you and I have. I think I think George H.W. Bush was the last American president who had served in the military. Is that right? But before him. Well, George I, W. Bush claims that he served in the right. Air Force so, well, uh, well, National Guard. Say, yeah, because because Obama was too young. But yeah. Clinton, W, and uh, Trump all found ways to not be, uh, mm-hmm. to not go and serve. Um, but I think up to HW from World War II on, of course, I mean, Eisenhower was a general, for God's sake. There was this thing in American politics, and with McCain passing a couple of years ago, I remember reading a lot of commentary about that, how the kind of the, the military background is just not as common as it once was. Yeah, And so it's just intriguing to me, like the biggest, one of the bigger military-related stories the last two weeks in video game news has been concern over the American military effectively kind of marketing itself on Twitch yeah. and other platforms. And there's kind of been a skepticism there. And I don't think it's just a quote unquote, and I'm not using this as pejorative, you know, woke kind of video game commentators. I don't think it's just that. I think there's a genuine kind of wave of unease about that. Yeah. So yeah. So where does a classic medal of honor view? Is it kind of like a Madden thing where like, if it's fun, nobody cares. I don't know. You know what I mean? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Well, and you know, you could see this kind of game, even though it's historical, you could see it fitting in that maybe same narrative of promoting the U.S. military, promoting uh, the U.S. Army. You know, it's it's yeah. not the U.S. Army playing games on Twitch or, you know, buying ad space on a major gaming website. But, um, you know, because your character is an American soldier, because they're involved with the OSS and... Um, you know, fighting in the Second World War, it is kind of indirectly promoting that bureaucracy. It's promoting that army. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated to see it. I, I don't know if I'll be able to play it. I think your point about maybe the audience for this game being older is a good one because of the expense mm-hmm. uh, associated with VR headsets. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I haven't bought one yet. So, um, I don't know you if think I'll be inspired. The, you think we'd be the target market. I know, I know, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd be inspired by this game to get one either. So uh, I would certainly have uh, quite a few issues with buying one from Oculus uh, because <laughs> of the close relationship with Facebook. But, I, you know, I I don't know. I do, I would I would like to play it at some point or maybe at least watch it uh, yeah. on Twitch or YouTube. Yeah, and it's it, one last thing on VR. I mean, We've joked at this before, but I mean, in the education space, I'll talk about education, uh, technology, and obviously I'll talk about video games. And the one thing that always gets traction is VR, because I think that there's somebody, you know, 
I'm sure the audience loves to hear this. So deans and other college administrators read these publications that are produced just for them. And I think they have like <laughs> VR articles once a month or something. Uh-huh. So you have all these people who, you know, they know what Super Mario is. And they also are under the impression that a professor can build like, you know, um, Normandy in a VR space in a week <laughs> if, they're, <laughs> if they're given the time. So Medal of Honor could find some traction there. You know, it could, yeah. you know, you could, you know, you could find find a donor um, to set you up with a special lab where college students can these these young these young people can learn what it was really like or whatever, um, which is another interesting level. Well, speaking and so speaking of narratives and everything else, I've seen a lot of I don't know much about the next Call of Duty Black Ops game, mm-hmm. but there have been a lot of Reagan centric, somewhat skeptical jokes in my social media feed. Um, Bob, do you know much about this next Call of Duty Black Ops game? Yeah, so we've got a new Call of Duty game coming out, Black Ops title. And this title, uh, which is coming out in November, I don't know if they've got a firm date yet, uh, but this one is going back to the Cold War. Uh, So if you'll remember, the first two Black Ops games uh, were centered around uh, Cold War history. Um, First game was kind of early Cold War, 1950s, going through to Vietnam. And then the second game... Uh, had this weird structure where it was modern day uh, elements, but then also uh, elements back in the past uh, during the kind of later stages of the Cold War in the 70s and the 80s. And this game, oh, and I should say that, you know, Black Ops 3, Black Ops 4 uh, went into kind of weird uh, modern alternate history. It didn't really involve the Cold War. This game, uh, Black Ops uh, Cold War is going back to the Cold War, as you could probably guess from the title of the game. And this one is going to be centered on the 1980s. And in the trailer, cinematic trailer for the game, uh, one of the characters that gets introduced is uh, Ronald Reagan, old old Ronnie Reagan. Uh, the so-called great communicator uh, steps in uh, <laughs> with the kind of known characters of the game. Uh, you've got, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Let me look at this. I'm going to look at the uh, website here. I don't know, but they, they've got uh, the Black Ops characters, the guy uh, that Ed Harris used to voice in Black Ops 1 and Black Ops 2. They're back. <laughs> uh, and now they're in a meeting with Ronald Reagan discussing um, a new covert mission that they're going to be a part of. And so this trailer and the previous uh, launch trailer for the game uh, have been criticized uh Firstly, for the presence of Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, who many people associate with uh, when it comes to covert ops, associate with the Iran-Contra affair, uh, associate with, uh, you know, various CIA activities in Latin America uh, and in the developing world during uh, the 1980s. And uh, so uh, many people have been criticizing this game for kind of uh, promoting uh, this person that they associate with war crimes essentially. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, my perspective is, you know, that criticism is fine, but at the same time, like this is what black ops has been doing since it started. Right. (laughs) I mean, you had uh, the first game had you um, participating in an attempted assassination on Fidel Castro. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, JFK uh, was in that game and let's not forget the uh, type of activities (laughs) that the U S government was up to when JFK was an audience. I mean, his hands are definitely not clean, especially when it comes to Vietnam, when it comes to Cuba and elsewhere. Right. Uh, and then uh, Black Ops 2 has uh, got even more uh, controversial elements. Uh, Oliver North, uh, who was directly involved in the Iran-Contra affair, uh, selling weapons to Iran, uh, 
to support uh, the Congress in Nicaragua, um, you know, he was uh, uh, not only uh, in the game as a character, uh, as an NPC, but also was an advisor uh, to Black Ops 2. And if you go back, um, Black Ops 2, I think, came out about nine years ago, eight years ago, something like that. If you go back and watch the um, kind of uh, promotional material, marketing material for that game, uh, Oliver North is, you know, kind of one of these uh, historical experts that they interview while oh they gosh. intersperse it with game footage, right? Um, right. And and furthermore, you've got, um, you know, as we talked about in the HR episode for Black Ops 1 and Black Ops 2, you've got other war criminals like Joseph Savimbi uh, in that game. Uh, you know, Noriega is in that game. I mean, this is this is what Black Ops does, right? And so... Right. I, I would say that I can uh, I can accept criticism of Reagan being in it, but it's like where were y'all when you know Oliver yeah. North was in the game? Uh, where were y'all <laughs> when we were uh, you know having missions uh, with uh, you know with Noriega with uh, Savimbi? I mean, you know, where was the controversy then? I know. I mean, yeah, my first reaction is kind of like, I mean, obviously Reagan is enough criticism. There's no question there, but I, I kind of feel. Reagan gets reduced to very simple um, depictions on both sides of the political aisle mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but like, and it's not just like, you know, the same way Oliver North's been on like TV for the last few years. It's mm-hmm. like, but it's Oliver North. Like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very much against kind of um, present day kind of dictums dictating how we treat historical figures, but it's Oliver North, <laughs> you know, like this guy, yes, he got, you know, limited immunity or whatever for effectively kind of, you know, um, sharing the ways he broke the law. But, you know, not a great guy. Here. Well, and Reagan, Reagan essentially got off the hook for Rand Contra because they thought, oh, well, he's so old that he didn't really know what was going on. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the response to that would be, if he's so old and doesn't know what he's going on, why is he president of the United States of America? Um, so, yeah. yeah, but that's a whole other a whole issue. Other, other, that's a whole other argument. Just you Phil Hartman, Ronald Reagan, and it'll cover everything. If yeah. You don't know what talked about. That's but so, yeah, but I would say that this controversy, particularly with regards to Reagan uh, mm-hmm. in this game, it it kind of shows you, I think, how the culture around games, uh, the coverage of games have changed in the last decade. You know, I would say the, and I, I don't want to generalize too much because sure, I'm sure there was criticism at the time, but when Black Ops 2 came out and it featured Oliver North, I don't remember this kind of uproar. But now right. with Reagan... Uh, being included, this kind of idea of what we were talking about with World War II, valorizing mm-hmm. American activities abroad, illegal activities, activities by the CIA uh, in manipulating foreign countries uh, and attacking foreign countries uh, through information warfare, through covert operations. That kind of history and that kind of game is now a point for criticism. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. don't, I don't think you would have seen that when Black Ops 2, Black Ops 1 was coming out, uh, it would just been kind of like, oh, this is the next game, right? But now right. I think there's kind of a general awareness that these games portray real history and that that historical portrayal might have an influence on what people think about that past. Yeah, and it's, you know, I know there's people out there going, but everything is, or, you know, the classic Ubisoft get ding, gets dinged a lot for our game isn't political. And they often deserve to get dinged, mm-hmm. um, but this is kind of this. This is getting intriguing. And and you know, Bob, you and I were children 
when the Iran Contra thing happened, but we kind of woke up or we kind of grew up with maybe parents talking about it or just yes. it being, you know, it not yes. being that far away and kind of mm-hmm. having a sense of the outline of it. And then, you know, how our parents felt about it kind of really helped shape how we felt about it. Um, but again, and I know that all video games, I know video games are not aimed primarily, well, maybe sometimes they aren't primarily at 20 year olds, but I know there's a very wide market of games across ages and, and all of the demographics. But there's, there's definitely a core demographic where this is it, this is how they're being introduced to it. So, you know, how do we feel about that? And as you say, that's where Oliver North coming into it is problematic. And I've read some other things about about the game. I think there was a trailer for the game that worried some people pretty significantly. It kind of had a, a strange take on the history of the period. Yes. Yeah, so there's a good article up on Kotaku about this, and it is about uh, Call of Duty's uh, Cold War, uh, or Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, their debut trailer. Uh, and it, uh, the Kotaku article is Call of Duty trailer recklessly promotes far right conspiracy theory. Uh, and so the conspiracy theory involved uh, includes uh, footage uh, that uh, Activision has included in this trailer, uh, includes footage of a, an interview uh, on a um, kind of a conspiracy television show back in the 1980s uh, featuring Soviet defector Yuri Bezmenov. And Bezmenov. Uh, and his ilk were famous for discussing active measures, uh, basically information warfare, uh, psychological warfare against the United States practiced by the Soviet Union. And Bezanov's suggestion was that, um, you know, the efforts to extend equality in the United States, essentially the civil rights un- uh, movement, uh, provided an avenue for the Soviet Union to create discord, political, economic and cultural discord within the United States. And so essentially the argument of conspiracy theorists back then was that uh, we should avoid the civil rights movement. We should avoid extending equality and worrying too much about equality because it makes us weak against the Hmm. Soviet Union. Um, So this is uh, the kind of, uh, uh, this is the interview that's uh, presented without context in the trailer for this new game. And now, stepping back for a moment and looking at historical games more generally, this is a pretty common tactic for developers and uh, narrative designers for historical games in the sense that they like to set games in the kind of cracks within the historical narrative. In other words, they like to find uh, a point of controversy. They like to find a compelling conspiracy theory or persistent conspiracy theory uh, and then fill in uh, the game narrative into that crack in the historical narrative. Uh, but here's mm-hmm. a moment where we have an out and out, you know, screwball conspiracy theory. Uh, one that is, <laughs> uh, was very popular in the 1980s, 1990s. Uh, but one that has no merit whatsoever. And so right. to have a game, you know, take that tact and to present it in a trailer, um, is really disturbing. And, you know, I, I would like to hold judgment until the final game comes out and, you know, certain elements of the game might even be changed uh, up until, you know, November when the game is released. But uh, it is one of these disturbing moments where, you know, you can see the perspective of the developers wanting to find a really interesting take on the Cold War and use that as the basis for their game. Uh, but to do so in kind of this, haphazard slapdash way in which you're promoting um, a conspiracy theory that is, you know, uh, racist 
in its perspective is really that's not great. It's not a good look. It's not what you want. <laughs> and I think it, it does play into one of the great fears that I have of conspiracy theories more broadly, which is, you know, I think one of the appeals of conspiracy theories and sometimes just flat out like bad historical takes is, aha, you see, it's always been taught this way, but it was actually yes. this, yeah. you know. And the funny thing is that's actually the fun part of history when you're doing it properly, which is, well, you know, it's true that we, you know, you might have learned this in school, but look, read these sources or read these books and you might still think what you thought um, when you were 16, but you'll but you'll be exposed to more more ways of looking at it. All, like the American Revolution is a very good example of that, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with seeing it as this entirety kind of glorious moment in history and the birth of a nation, so on and so on. But there's a lot more stuff you can kind of uh, you can kind of learn of it. I think of another example is the Irish slaves uh, lie, mm-hmm, um, yeah. which is the idea. Well, there were Irish slaves too. No, there weren't. There just weren't. And and there's a, there's a few reasons. That particular lie is popular, um, and some of them are very not okay, they're racist. Mm, yeah. But I think there's this core idea of like, ah, yeah, but you know, this is the real, you know, this is the real stuff here, you know, yeah. <laughs> like you know, and what your teacher and, doesn't want you to know. Yeah, and part of our job is like, you know, you can do that by going into this thing called a library, you know, like um, the truth dot, you know, the truth dot info dot x is not like. A random website is not a reliable source of this stuff. So that's concerning. And so seeing it come into like, don't forget these quote unquote AAA games, you massive amounts of money are invested in this. Person hours are invested in this game. That's, you know, they, they should do a bit better. It's, yeah. not, it's not okay. Considering all the ways they could, as you say, Bob, they could find their little um, spaces in between the lines without going to those dark places. I know, think so. Totally doable. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Well, well, so speaking of kind of bending things, we were going to talk about a couple of uh, things that are coming up soon. Iron Harvest came out, which um, I haven't got my hands on yet, Bob. I think we're both going to get that game, um, which is basically mechs in an interwar period. I'm not sure if the war stopped or not, but it's an alternate take on 1920s Western Europe slash Central Eastern Europe, I think, right? Yes, yeah. And so uh, this is a real-time strategy game uh, that's come out. Uh, and, uh, I'm fascinated to play it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of in, in the next decade or so, if I live that long, obviously, but I'm really <laughs> curious to see how the interwar period is depicted by video games. You know, we've seen mm-hmm. already, of course, you know, uh, starting with games like Medal of Honor, the ways in which, uh, second world war is adapted. We've seen more recently in this past decade, how the first world war has been adapted by games. And now I think we're going to get a whole slew of new titles that adapt in a war history. And I think our iron harvest fits into that. I think, uh, the new game from the Romero's uh, empire of sin mm-hmm. about gangsters yeah. Yeah. and the interwar period during prohibition. I think that fits into that as well. And so, I'm really curious to play Iron Harvest, um, not only for, um, you know, its game mechanics. I'm curious to play what an RTS uh, looks like uh, in 2020, but mm-hmm. also I'm I'm curious about its ideas about, you know, alternate histories, alternate takes on the interwar period. And, you know, it seems like it kind of fits in part and parcel with, uh, you know, other uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, alternate histories that have been portrayed mm-hmm. by different mods. You know, you can think of uh, 
Hearts of Iron mods that look at, oh, what what if, you know, the First World War just kept going, you know, for instance, mm-hmm. or, right. you know, what if there had never been the rise of Nazi Germany, that kind of thing. And you see that playing out in a lot of different modifications, uh, primarily for Hearts of Iron, but then for other games as well. And so I think that this game kind of fits into that alternate history uh, world, uh, one that's really popular with modding communities. And so I'm I'm curious to see what a, what a game uh you know a game that's focused on those kinds of right. alternate histories what's that what's that look like and and bob just you know briefly what do you think the potential is there because you know interwar period's kind of your home field um it is i'm very excited I'm, I'm deliberately going to be overly general here, but I feel like in my high school experience a long time ago, it was like, well, in the 1920s, um, everyone was drinking and having fun and being having illicit fun, if possible. In the 1930s, everything went wrong, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, obviously I'm being a little bit facetious, but not that much more facetious than my history textbook was. Yeah. Um, you know, why, what are where, what are potential areas or, you know, how, how would you like to see the interwar period get explored in a different way and some of this new media coming out? Well, I think one of the most difficult things with the interwar period when you're writing about it, when you're teaching it, is to get over this idea, this kind of established narrative that you mentioned where, you know, you've got a moment of tranquility and peace in the 1920s and then the 1930s, everything is just a, a sliding slope down to the Second World War. And I think that uh, does a disservice to interwar history because you've definitely got moments in the 1930s that uh, show a possibility for a different past, uh, you know, a different uh, future that could have been uh, for Europe and for the rest of the world. Uh, And then also, uh, you know, I think that the traditional perspective on the 1920s is kind of this period where, like you said, uh, everybody's having a good time and getting drunk uh, is also – misrepresenting that past. You know, you can think uh, kind of the worldwide Red Scare uh, in -hmm. Europe uh, and, you know, the colonial world, United States as Mm -hmm. well, uh, during the uh, immediate post-war period, uh, very serious violence, very serious, uh, you know, repression of um, politics, of social norms, of uh, left-leaning political groups. And uh, that kind of activity continues on uh, into the 1920s, you know, for the stuff that I study, uh, policing, uh, international Mm -hmm. policing, you've got a worldwide movement to basically eradicate uh, labor leaders, to uh, suppress labor groups, to suppress left-leaning political groups. Um, You've got the rise of J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the Palmer raids in the United States. Um, So, you know, to call the interwar period, you know, to call the 1920s in particular, this kind of uh, rosy period of brief harmony before destruction, I think, is misrepresenting <laughs> it. So uh, I'm curious to see if games get into that at all. I mean, I know that that's kind of a little bit more of a um, sophisticated perspective because sure. you know, I'm a PhD. But um, I do think that there's opportunities without getting involved in conspiracy theories. There's opportunities to tell histories of this time period that are more nuanced and I think more interesting potentially for game players than you know what you could do with just the static narrative history that you get in most textbooks. Right. No, definitely. And I, I, I'm thinking, you know, Iron Harvest has the steampunk aesthetic and idea, which and steampunk aficionados listening might 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 correct me but i always associate that with a kind of a late 19th century usually alternate history so it's kind of intriguing to me because it's almost 
it's this built-in kind of way or a built-in viewpoint that instead of looking forward to 1939 slash 1937, 41, whichever year your country considers World War II to have begun, it's looking backwards, which 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 makes sense, like you say, like the uh, um, um, the kind of reacting to labor rights is very much a continuation of the struggles of, of the 1850s on, you know, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you awesome. know, with regards to the steampunk element, you know, and I think you're right to point this out, is that those elements, uh, this kind of uh, ideas about where uh, the future was leading, you know, from the late 19th century, you know, there were many Europeans at the time who assumed that there were going to be large mechanical machines like this. And, you Mm -hmm. know, for my undergraduate thesis, I studied British fears of invasion during the late 19th century and the lead up to the First World War. And there's this whole, uh, you know, field of cultural history that looks at, uh, you know, British sci-fi novels during the late 19th century, stuff like H.G. Wells, uh, where they're worried about, mm-hmm. you know, the French or the Germans creating these super machines uh, that can devastate uh, the English defenses, can eliminate the English fleet in the English Channel, and then overwhelm England's defenses at home. And that is essentially, you know, the kind of most famous example of this is H.G. Uh, Wells' War of the Worlds, which is, uh, you know, extraterrestrial invasion, but again, mechanical creatures, mm-hmm. uh, mechanized, uh, you know, tanks on large legs and whatnot. Uh, and that kind of perspective, you know, the idea behind that came out of this late 19th century period, this concern uh, with invasion, not necessarily of extraterrestrials, but of other European powers. So, right, right. This, all this stuff, you know, uh, this particular version of steampunk that you see in Iron Harvest, this is new, but the idea would have fit in well uh, in, you know, kind of uh, general fears, uh, sci fi mm-hmm. fears from that time period, from the late 19th century going forward. Mm-hmm. Right. And also, World War One didn't end imperialism, which is kind of. <laughs> sometimes taught that way but wait yeah yes we have a lot to talk about so we're hopefully have some good coverage on iron harvest and um i think we're going to wrap up soon but you've got a couple more cool things to talk about bob um you have the the next inkle game and then a book that i'm excited about which do you want to go for first yeah let's talk about inkle so inkle studios uh developers of 80 days developers of uh, heaven's vault um heaven's vault we had a good episode on that i think last year um, and mm-hmm. so uh, they're uh, a studio that should be familiar to you if you are into historical games. And they've got a new game called Pendragon coming out uh, at the end of this month. And uh, this is a game that's going to be set uh, basically in England. Uh, and you're going to be playing out uh, the Legend of King Arthur, uh, Arthurian legends uh, in the 7th century. And uh, the game has got... An interesting structure. I, I haven't played it yet, um, but uh, you know they're touting it as a uh, narrative strategy game, and in a sense, you are uh, playing out the strategy element and the ways in which you adapt to the strategy, the ways in which uh, your battles, your tactics play out. That determines where the narrative goes, and so this kind of fits in with uh, Inkle's. Uh, past development you know this is kind of a part Mm -hmm. of 80 days you know which is right essentially a a very dressed up choose your own adventure game (laughs) and then heaven's vault also um you know that has a mechanic in it where you are responsible for translating um 
you know, archaeological uh, finds, you know, language in that game. And the success that you have in translation determines on what narrative choices or what narrative uh, options open up for you. So they've been working on this type of model of game for a long time. And I'm really interested in seeing what this means for Pendragon, for this Arthurian legend. And, you know, I'm I'm really excited to to cover it for history respawn i think i think it'll be a good game yeah i'm excited you know they they had those um sorcery games on smartphones as well mm -hmm. which are also choose your own adventure i just love the name of that game yeah i don't know good name the fact they called it pendragon yeah i'm like yeah that kind of i don't know that just bodes well for their creative choices i think it's just not obvious but not but not not too obscure it's i good. think yeah i think they know what they're doing um yeah and i think that you know at least for our audience they they are choosing um, titles. They are choosing um, kind of settings really well. Uh, very mm -hmm. clever. Um, and then the the book that you mentioned um, is Sid Meier's memoir, uh, which is called Sid Meier's memoir. And so <laughs> Sid Meier, uh, famously the developer of the Civilization series, uh, particularly worked on Civilization One, Civilization Two. Uh, and then kind of loaned his name and provided advice for the subsequent Civilization games. Also famous for all of the titles he produced at Microprose during the 80s and 90s, uh, Sid Meier's Pirates, um, mm -hmm. Covert Operations, or I think it's called Covert Operations, it's some spy game, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Railroad Tycoon, um, Gosh, what else? There's dozens Sim of other... SimCity, Sid Meier? No, that's... Uh, oh! That's Will Wright. Um uh, but yes, uh, but you see, Sid Meier is so important. I got it mixed up with Will Wright, who's also yeah. huge. <laughs> uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg as well. A uh, really true. famous strategy game from the early 90s. And so he's written a memoir. And, you know, over the past, uh, I would say, decade, Sid Meier uh, and the other uh, people who worked at Microprose, like Bruce Shelley, um, they've been out and about uh, doing talks, doing interviews. Uh, they did a uh, a few things at GDC in the past few years where they kind of do retrospectives on their old games. Uh, now we've got uh, Sid Meier's actually publishing a, a book, a memoir. And so I'm really interested in digging into it uh, because I think uh, we still, even though, you know, video games have been around for a long time, we still don't have much in the way of firsthand perspectives on the history of mm -hmm. games. We have a lot of people talking right. about uh, the ephemera of games, talking about the marketing of games, talking about games that are published and analyzing those. But as far as talking to developers and talking to them uh, about older titles, we still, you know, you would be surprised, uh, you know, mm -hmm. listener, by how little we actually have in the way of memoirs or diaries or journals uh, related to game development. So uh, to get one of those titles is a great joy, uh, but to get one from Sid Meier, uh, I think it's really important for people interested in historical games because, you know, so many of his titles are foundational to uh, the mm -hmm. historical games we play today. So I, I got an advanced copy of the game or of the, not the game. Uh, I wish it was a game. <laughs> uh, I got an advanced copy of the memoir. So I'm looking forward to digging into that this weekend and then hopefully writing a review, um, either History Respawn or somewhere else uh, coming up. So, yeah. Excited awesome. about that. That's great. And it's such a great point that um, I just wish you had more of this stuff. Like if if someone had asked me 10 years ago, what's a good book to read about the talks of the development of a game? I would have said, oh, you have to read Masters of Doom, mm -hmm. which is about Doom and is really good. 
And if you asked me today, I would say you should probably read Masters of Doom. Like there's nothing. <laughs> there's there, there there have been a couple in the last decade mm-hmm. and a half, but it, it's slow going. And I, I I got two of the most famous designers mixed up. Will Wright has done one of those masterclass videos. You know those things they advertise mm-hmm. on Facebook mm-hmm. to people with uh, to people with twenty year old children. Um, you know, so you could give us hundreds of dollars, and uh, your son your son or daughter can watch a, de- a few Dead Mouse videos on how to make how to be a DJ. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Wright has one of those. I didn't know that. Design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I haven't I haven't seen it. Um, um, I think I'm gonna I, I would like to see it, but it's kind of intriguing because. As you just said, from our interest, it's like, oh, I'm assuming he will talk about The Sims and 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 yeah. SimCity and other things that he's done. So I, I I can't wait to hear about memoir, and I'll, I'll probably read it myself. So that's great. That's awesome. So I think everyone knows I've been playing Crusader Kings three, um, playing a bunch of Crusader Kings three, um, and that's kind of that's kind of where I am. Uh, how about you, Bobby? Before we go, are you playing anything fun? Yeah, uh, I've been playing the God of War game. I think I've mentioned this uh, yeah, on the last yeah, yeah. podcast. Uh, the most recent God of War game that came out, I think, a few years ago now uh, for PlayStation Four. And like I mentioned last time, this is the first God of War game that I played. Uh, you know, when God of War came out originally on PlayStation Two, and then PlayStation Three, I was in a period where I wasn't playing games. I was an undergrad. I was a master's student and I was not really paying attention to games or doing any of that stuff. Uh, but I decided to pick up this one cause I thought, you know, it might be interesting to look at it uh, for history respawns. You know, there's a lot of, uh, as you probably know, you know, historical mythology, God of war, um, the original series one through three focuses on Greek mythology. Uh, and then uh, this game, the new God of War has uh, the same character, main character Kratos, uh, from Greece, uh, now in um, kind of a uh, ancient version of uh, Scandinavia. All right, uh, interacting with uh, the gods and demigods of uh, Norse mythology, and uh, it's it's a game though that I think is just not for me. Um, I think <laughs> the the historical elements, the kind of uh, narrative touches with the ways in which they adapt the history of Norse mythology, uh, the ways in which they use runes uh, as mm-hmm. part of a narrative element, a gameplay element. I think that's super interesting. But the moment to moment gameplay, the third person action of these games is just really boring uh, to me. And I don't <laughs> think I'm going to make it all the way through. And that's not to say the game isn't well-made. It's incredibly well-made. It's really beautiful. It shows up well on the PlayStation 4. But I just I just don't find the gameplay that interesting. And the combat is just kind of not not compelling to me. And, you know, and that's just me speaking. I'm not saying that that kind yeah, of combat yeah. is bad in general. But it's just something I don't find that interesting. And it makes me realize, well, I don't think I would have enjoyed... God of War if I had played it even back in the 2000s. Now, maybe, you know, these kind of third-person action games are for young people. Maybe they're more <laughs> compelling to people who don't have a long history of playing beat-em-ups. But I, for me, it's just kind of like, oh, you know, this is an old style of game with a lot of new window dressing. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I often... I, I've got to the point where my time is just my video game time is so precious because there's so little of it. Yeah. My patience is just gone and I, I just can't hang out and play games. But it reminds me of um the third Dragon Age game, mm-hmm. which there are people who love that game with a passion 
I cannot do justice to using the English language. Like they <laughs> love that game. And I've always, and it's, it's, it's not exactly a white whale, but I've tried so hard to like that game because I loved the first game and the second game. Uh, and I, I, one day I realized I, I loved the first game. I remember being on a research trip, in Washington DC and leaving the archive early to go back to my hotel room to play Dragon Age yeah. Origins. There's a confession right there. When I should have been working, I played Dragon Age Origins. And I just don't like the way that um, the third Dragon Age game plays. Inquisition, yeah. Inquisition, thank you. I just don't like the way it plays. Mm -hmm. And I've heard so many good things about it. Like, people love that game and the story it tells. And I just I just can't get there. Yeah. You know? I, and I, I'm one of those people who enjoyed Inquisition quite a bit when it came out. I don't know if I could replay it now. I think that game style is kind of belongs to a different era but i could totally see that criticism i think your criticism is absolutely valid it's that that style of game the way that they approached it is definitely not for everybody and you know i think that's the same story with god of war unfortunately yeah. you know as i i know that you know it won all sorts of game of the year awards lots of journalists you know that's their favorite game lots of players that's their favorite game but for me i just think that the combat the moment to moment action in that game is just it's not very compelling. It's just, yeah. it's not, it's not for me. Yeah. 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 I know what you mean. I had a, maybe I'll have further comments later in the year, but I was actually in the beta. I, I do have a watch you've been playing. I was in the beta for Amazon's new MMO, New World, uh -huh. um, which is kind of an interesting, like themes of colonization of a new world, but with mm -hmm. ghosts, I guess. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know. Well, that's kind of that's complicating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. It might, it might, it might work out. It's, it's, you know, they're they're really on the kind of fantasy side of it. Mm. But they're doing this thing a lot of MMOs try to do, which is um, they're trying to spice up the action, and it just feel. And in fairness, I must be very clear: the game is in beta, so there's a yeah, lot of stuff. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but it just, it's just, it's like Dark Souls combat, except bad. Mm. Um, <laughs> not very enjoyable um and i'm just clicking my mouse button a lot and nothing i'm like you could have just given me a spell bar like i have in world of warcraft or something yeah um and so it's a similar thing where if that game were to emerge as a really compelling and especially the kind of game that we should cover in history respond it would i'd be very sad if the gameplay was a barrier to that because there's just no th that's obviously a key experience in games is playing them so <laughs> you know, I'm not getting past that. no i can't believe it um <laughs> I think it is funny, though, that we have gotten to a point, and we've been here for a while, I think, with History Respawn. We've gotten to a point where there are so many history games, there's so many games tinged with historical perspective, like New World, that we just don't have time to play yep. them all. And exactly. uh, it just goes to show you how important this genre of game, you know, games with historical elements, games representing the past how important that is for games in the game industry in general, right? This is mm -hmm. not just like some sort of niche topic. This is front and center <laughs> when it comes to major releases, especially for this fall. I mean, you know, we've been talking about kind of smaller games and I would kind mm -hmm. of lump paradox games into that. You know, this is a game that'll be super popular with hardcore gamers, but maybe not right. with general audiences. But then you've got a new Assassin's Creed, a new Call of Duty coming up, which are historical games. And those are going to be played yeah. by millions and millions and millions of people. So right through every part of the gaming industry, you know, uh, whether it's a small indie title, whether it's kind of a mid-budget game, or whether it's a AAA release, I mean, this is this is gaming. This is history. Yeah. No, I think, and I think that's a great place to leave it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Um, 
If you don't know where to find us, you can go to historyrespond.com. You can find History Respond on YouTube. And, of course, we hope that you enjoyed the podcast. If you're not a subscriber, you consider subscribing. You can always visit patreon.com slash historyrespond to support our work. We certainly appreciate it. And um, we're just grateful you gave us some of your time. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.